Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast for Sunday, November 19th, 2023. Today's sermon will be from 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Welcome to Grace Baptist Church. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. But before I read uh, 1 Chronicles, I want to back up a bit. Mary, I fibbed to you. We're not going to be just in 1 Chronicles 16. We're going to start at chapter 1. So while John's got 30 minutes to preach today, I don't have such time restrictions, so I figured we'd go 16 chapters. But chapters 1 through 15, I'm going to run through. But before we begin, let's pray once more, and then we'll take a look at 1 Chronicles. Dear Lord, we come to you with open hands. Lord, we open your word, and Lord, we just ask that you you would speak to us through it, that you would grow us, that you would cause us to see the sin that that dwells in our hearts. Lord, cause us to repent, cause us to turn from it, cause us to cling to Christ. Lord, cause us to examine our hearts here this morning by your word. Lord, cause us to examine our affections, examine our desires. And this morning, as we consider your word, cause us to examine our thankfulness. Lord, cause us to to look to you here this morning. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds. Lord, cause us to, to look to you. In your precious and holy name I pray. Amen. So, like I said, we're going to start in chapter 1. Not really, because I don't have the time nor the ability to pronounce half of these names. So, chapters 1 through 9, 1 Chronicles, we see the the genealogy of Israel. The writer of, of 1 Chronicles walks through this genealogy. And then he gets to David. But before he gets to David, he makes a little comment about Saul in chapter 10. He marks the death of Saul and the end of his rule. And then in chapter 11, we've got a high point in history here. We've got a high point in history, but we also have a high point for mankind as a whole. David is appointed as king. We see David, this lowly little shepherd, appointed as king over Israel. This is the high point. This is, this is, this is one of those points. I mean, we, we take chapter 11 and we just we go ahead and circle it and mark it and make sure we know what's going on here. Because becoming king, David covenants with his people, with the people of Israel. Now, this covenant, it takes place before the people, people of Israel, but more importantly, it takes place before God. So David not only covenants with the people, that, showing that he's going to rule well or desires to rule well, he makes a covenant with God saying, I'm going to rule well. I'm going to obey your commands. I'm going to obey 
what you have set forth, what you have prescribed. So David makes this covenant. Now things were not too good for the nation. Things were not great for the nation of Israel whenever David steps into this role. If you remember back to the first chapter of Judges, God commanded the people of Israel to move into the land of Canaan. Did the people of Israel move into the land of Canaan? They did. Did they conquer the land of Canaan? Eh. They got halfway there. God commanded them to go in, drive out the inhabitants, and set up camp. Not just set up camp. To establish a kingdom. Well, they didn't do that. They shared the land. They shared the culture. They shared the idols of the people. And in Judges 2, 1 through 5, we see that the inhabitants would be a thorn in their side. So David comes in as a conquering king. He comes in kicking butt, taking names. He's coming in to take Jerusalem. So he tells the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem, all right, let's get packing. The Jebusites, they willingly go, right? Does anybody remember this story? The Jebusites, do, do they just pack things up and leave? Say, you're right, David, you're, you're God's appointed king. We'll, we'll move out. No. He said, he said, you will not take this land. You will not come in here. So all this is going on in 1 Chronicles 11. And so David is determined. He is determined to uphold these covenants. He's determined to uphold the covenant with Israel as king. He's determined to uphold the covenant with God and to honor God. So he puts forward an opportunity it's a military position promised to the first man to go in and strike the Jebusites. So Joab, the son of Zariah, steps forward and attacks. David and his men follow. They take Jerusalem. It's, it's effortless almost. And the picture here, it's incredible. This, this, this is the kind of story that movies are made of. This is the kind of story where heroes are made. And, and we, we see this, and as I, I've, I've read this over the last couple of weeks, I've, I've, I've thought about the Fellowship of the Rings. I think of those, those elves, those dwarves, those men, those hobbits, standing around saying, who's going to step up, who's going to go? Who's going to step up and fight this fight? Who's going to defend what is good? What is ordained? And these men step up. So, so you've got Joab. You've got uh, Jashubim, the Hakamanite. He wielded his spear against 300 men whom he killed at one time. I mean, guys, 
this is pretty cool, right? I mean, any man's man who, who reads this thinks, that's my guy. Marvel, DC Comics, they have nothing on this guy. 300 men, one spear, one time. Eliezer, he took his stand. When the rest of the army fled, he goes to battle. The rest of the army is running behind. They tuck tail and run. And Eliezer stands and fights. He doesn't back down, and he defeats the entire army there. You've, you've got these, these men who are willing to, to go to battle, to, to step up to the call. You have spear-wielding men. You've got valiant men. You've got doers of good. You've, uh, you've got men who desired to serve their king. They're called the mighty men. In fact, just take your pen, take your highlighter, mark right there at chapter 12 of 1 Chronicles. Go back and read these, these accounts. And then open up to chapter 14 after you mark chapter 12. I just want you to see verses 16 and 17. And David did as God commanded. They struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Gezer. And the fame of David went out into all, all lands. And the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. So they've defeated the Jebusites. They've defeated the Philistines. And they're returning the spoils of war to Jerusalem. And among those spoils is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this, this isn't an Indiana Jones movie. This is David God, and God's people restoring the Ark of the Covenant to its rightful place, to its rightful people. So they're walking along. Y'all remember this story? They put it on a cart. The ox stumbles. Uzzah puts out his hand to steady the ark. He thinks, you know, I'm doing the right thing, right? Wrong. He's dead. I wish I could snap. He's dead. Gone. On the spot. So David sees this. We're not even going to look at the implications of Uzzah here. But David sees this. He begins to have second thoughts. He begins to have second thoughts of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He thinks if Uzzah reaches out and touches it and dies immediately, what kind of implications does this have for me, for my people? So instead of taking it on into Jerusalem, he parks it at Obed-Edom's house. He said, hey, buddy, why don't we just park this over here? Why don't we just park the Ark of the Covenant, which we know is a great symbol to our people. Why don't we just park it over here? And after three months of the Ark being at Obed-Edom's house, David notices something. And of course, David's 
certainly not the only one to notice this. The people of Israel noticed something about Obed-Edom, about his family, about his household, about everyone associated with him in that home. There's blessings. They, they are blessed. They, they have things happening that did not happen before. The presence of God was in Obed-Edom's house. The ark then made its way to Jerusalem. David saw this great blessing, saw what was going on, saw the benefit of having the ark of the covenant so close, brought it to Jerusalem so that all the people of Israel could benefit. So it's returned. But why does this cause them to sing in chapter 16? Why does this cause them to sing? So the ark significance is significance to the people of Israel. When we look at its creation, we look at its contents in Exodus, we see that it signifies the Mosaic covenant. It signifies the covenants that God made with his people. Second, we see that the ark is symbolic of God's presence on earth. God with us. God present. This is important for the people of Israel. The people of God to reobtain, in a sense, the covenant and the presence of God. Of course, the, the ark's not just a symbol of God's presence. Wherever the ark was, God did manifest his presence in a special way. Anytime God's presence is noted in Scripture, we see unique blessing. I mean, just, just think back in the Old Testament when God showed up before Moses. What happened? His face glowed so much so they had to veil his face. Think of New Testament when Christ came. We, we're sitting here as a result of that presence. So, looking at the presence of God, we see special things happening. So, let's look at First Chronicles 16 and see how they responded. Starting with verse 1. And they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then they appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him was Zechariah. Jael, Shemermoth, Jehiel, Mathatai, Eliab, Benai, Obed-Edom, and Jael, who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, Beniah and Jehaziel, the priests were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. And then on that day, David first appointed 
that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And here we have this song. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let, all, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed as a statute to Jacob, as an everlasting covenant to Israel, saying to you, I will give you the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number and of little account, sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked the kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be held in all above all the gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the, glory, to the Lord glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship him in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established it shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God, of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name, the glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. So looking at this passage, we see God's presence produces thanksgiving. And we see it manifested in four ways. Four ways, acknowledgement, worship, evangelism, and remembrance. Like many of the Psalms, this, this is a common theme that you will have several things that are mixed in in no particular order, but you, you, 
you just you have to pick out pieces as you go. It's it's repeated so that we actually remember it, so that we actually retain it. So let's begin with acknowledgement. David appointed on this day that the people sing a song of thanksgiving. In giving thanks, they recognized, they acknowledged that God was God. They acknowledged the God whom they were thankful for. This was not some arbitrary giving of thanks. And I think this is what is confusing for us as Americans when we speak of giving thanks. When we think of giving thanks, when we think of thanksgiving, what's the first thing that comes to mind? If y'all are thinking turkey, stop it because I'm getting hungry too. But we do. We think turkey. We think the fixings. We, we think football. We think Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Some of us, we, we just look right past Thanksgiving and think Black Friday sales. Ladies, how many of y'all are already thinking about the sales that are going on? I won't call anybody out. We think about the subsequent shopping days that follow. We think about Christmas trees, Christmas lights, Christmas shopping. But what about thanksgiving? What about our practice of giving thanks? When David wrote this psalm of thanks, he acknowledged God. He acknowledged God who was worthy of thanks. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, we see in verse 8. Glory in his holy name, verse 10. Seek the Lord, verse 11. He is the Lord, our God, verse 14. He commands, he makes covenants, he confirms. And my pages are sticking together. Ascribe to the Lord, verse 28 to 29. In David's acknowledgement, we see several things that I want to note here. We see a living knowledge that expresses itself in transformed living. David and the people of Israel, they commit to ascribing glory to God. They commit to it. When we commit to something, what do we do? We do it one day and it's done. Husbands, whenever you committed to your wives on that wedding day, some of you got to think back further than others. Was this just a one-day deal? Was it a one-day deal, Ellie? It was an everyday deal. So they committed to ascribing the glory to God daily. This required devotion. Devotion to the task of worship. This required personal purity to the ones who carried out the duties of the offerings. We see David giving thanks, acknowledging God of being worthy of praise since he's God, since he is strength of the people, since he is their creator, since he causes his people to endure, to persevere. He is holy, and he is worthy to be praised. In this, we see the mighty works of God, and that he is worth praising. Verses 28 to 29, 
something interesting shows up. Ascribe to the Lord. O clans of people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. In fact, this is the second time that we see this phrase show up in the Old Testament. The first being Deuteronomy 32.3. Ascribe to the Lord. What, is, what, what does this mean? What does it mean to ascribe? How many of you use ascribe on a daily basis? It's, it's not something we commonly use in our, in our Southern American English. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe is not, it, it means attribute something to. So what are we ascribing to the Lord? What are we attributing to God? The psalmist says glory and strength. So if ascribing glory and strength, we're not simply giving these traits to God. We are seeing, we are understanding, we're recognizing, we're acknowledging that these traits belong to God. We acknowledge that God has all glory, that he has all strength, he is holy, he is worthy of our praise. So how do we ascribe these things to the Lord? We thank him. We worship him. For God alone is worthy to be worshiped. Which brings us to our second. Is worship. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. When we are in the presence of God, we worship. If you look back, or look forward, excuse me, in Revelation, what are the angels doing before the throne of God? In the presence of God. They're worshiping. David, as the king of, of, of as the leader of the people of Israel, though he calls the people together to worship God. The people are gathered in response to a call. They've been called together to worship. Just as we gather here this morning to worship. Worship rightly oriented to God makes us a peculiar people. Makes us different. Makes us different. We worship vocationally. What do I mean by that? Every breath we breathe is to be worship. Acknowledging, ascribing to God the glory that is His. That's our job. That's our job. We often tell our kids, your number one job right now is to obey your parents. That's number one job. Ain't that right, girls? Your number one job is to obey mom and dad. Our number one job is to obey God in worship. We're worshipers by design. We're worshipers. J.K.A. Smith, a Christian philosopher, writes, To worship is an invitation to be human. 
We worship naturally. We're created to worship. But worship to God is to be peculiar. I like that word, peculiar. Altogether different from the rest of the world. Because the rest of the world worships through veiled eyes. Worships through veiled eyes. When I was thinking through this, I I was reminded of the Hagia Sophia. Back in 2020, the Turkish government turned the Hagia Sophia back into a functional mosque. No longer just used as a museum. And so in doing this, they had to strategically cover some paintings that have come through that are now visible to visitors. Especially on the eastern wall, the direction that the Muslims come in and worship. Facing that eastern wall, right up there, is pictures of Christ coming through. They had to veil, put this thin, sheer curtain up to cover that painting. You could see it. You can't make out what it really is, but you can see there's something there. But they're worshiping through veiled eyes. David calls this type of worship directed to worthless idols. Worthless idols. Now I realize we're we're not, many of us are not worshiping idols, man-made idols. We're, we're, We're not setting up little statues. I mean, we do have a little statue that was a gift from a Turkish friend of an idol. Uh, But we're not worshiping it. We don't worship idols in that way. But we still worship idols. Our God is great and greatly to be praised. When we worship, do we worship in such a way that recognizes this? This is... very thought-provoking question. I mean, when we, when we examine ourselves, do we worship in a way that recognizes that God is great, that God is greatly to be praised? Do we worship acknowledging God as worthy of great praise, consistent praise, consuming praise? Consuming praise being praise that influences our lives, influences our affections, our decisions, affects how we're thankful. Our worship overflows into every area of our lives. We acknowledge God in our private lives, our public lives. We acknowledge God in how we use our time, how we interact with others, how we think, how we work, how we live. This acknowledgement overflows in worship. Our worship overflows in evangelism. And, and I, I, I like this over, overflow picture. And, and as I was typing up my manuscript, I, I realized I use overflow language a lot. Uh, if you're in my home group, you've probably heard me use overflow language in how we worship 
overflows to evangelism, how evangelism overflows into disciple-making, how disciple-making overflows in, into being reproducing, those types of things, how our love for God overflows in love for others. I just, I like overflow language. I like knowing my cup is filled up and overflowing. Because it's the same thing here. When we acknowledge God for being God, we, it overflows into worship. I mean, we can do nothing else but run over with worship. When we worship rightly, it overflows into sharing, into evangelism. So let's look at our third way that Thanksgiving is manifested here. Evangelism. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Tell of his wondrous works. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among the people. Acknowledging God causes us to worship. and also causes us to make God known to others. David recognizes God's desire for the nations to know God. And what is the purpose of of making God known to others. What is the purpose, ladies, who are fixing to go, make the name of Christ known to the nations? What is the purpose, folks, as you go to work, share the gospel with coworkers, kids, students, as you go to school and make the gospel known to those classmates sitting right beside of you, to the lady at the checkout line at the grocery store? What is the purpose of making God known to them. It's got to be more than fire insurance, right? It's got to be more. Let's look at verses 25 to 26. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and he is to be held in awe above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Here we see our motive for evangelism. God is worthy to be praised. God is worthy to be praised. So our motive for evangelism is in an overflow of our worship. That cup's running over. So God is worthy to be praised. Thus we want to, others to praise him as created. Verses 28 to 30. Follow along with me there. Ascribe to the Lord. We're back there again. O clans of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Worship is the goal of our evangelism. Worship is the goal. That people rightly worship God. And this, this fleshes itself out in how we make disciples. Because evangelism isn't the end all. We, we want to walk through life with people. We, we, we don't just save them to get them in a chair to worship. We want them to worship rightly. So... Evangelism leads to discipleship. 
We want to walk through life with one another, teaching one another, encouraging one another, striving along with one another in an understanding way. That's what discipleship is. It's not some fancy plan that we put together. It's living life together, teaching one another, encouraging one another, loving one another in a way that points them to right affections and worship of God. So we want to share the work that God has accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Salvation restores us to right relationship with God. It makes it possible to worship God rightly. So this desire for salvation, it goes out to the nations, to all the people. But it must be preceded with prayer. Look at verses 35-36. The psalmist writes, Save us, O God, of our salvation. While David, David's looking primarily at the physical salvation of the kingdom, of the people, the literal saving of the nations. We cry out asking God, save us. Looking at the grand narrative of Scripture, we, 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 we've got the whole story here. David had this much. We've got all of it. We know what God has done. We know what God has, has accomplished on our behalf. We're not looking for just a, a saving of a nation. We're looking for a saving of a people that God has called out. So in prayer, we recognize that God is the only source of life and life eternal. God creates, he upholds, he preserves all things for his glory. And in this, we give thanks. We give thanks. All of these wondrous works that he has done, we remember. This brings us to our final way that thanksgiving is manifested through God's presence. So we remember. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. Verse 12. And remember his covenants forever. Verse 15. These verses call us to remember. This would have been easy for the Israelites to look back and see how God had preserved them. How God had, had preserved them, held them together as a nation. How he raised them up from obscurity. How he made a great nation from them. God made his people something out of nothing. They were few in number. They were of little account. They were sojourners. They were wandering. They were not the best of the best. They were the last ones picked for the team. But God has big plans for small things. In personal reflection, we can look back. We can look back and see how God has worked in our lives. We can see how we lived before Christ. And we can rejoice in the saving work of God. We can see the troubles that God has brought us through. We can see the needs that were met. The physical healings that God has brought forth. And because God has been faithful in our past, we know that he will be faithful in our future for all eternity. But even still, what if things don't get better? 
What if things still hurt? What if we still have mess? What do we do with that? Is God still worthy of our praise? I've got a little quote here by Charles Spurgeon. He said, here is a standing reason for thanksgiving. Although we may not always be healthy, nor always prosperous, yet God is always good. And therefore, there is always a sufficient argument for giving thanks unto Jehovah, that he is a good God, essentially, that he cannot be otherwise than good. Should be a fountain out of which the richest praises should perpetually flow. God is always good. God is always worthy of our praise. We always remember that. There's one more aspect of remembrance that we see in David's psalm. Look at verse 11 with me. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Why was David and the people of Israel rejoicing? Why? Why were they giving thanks? The presence of God had been restored. God's presence had been restored to the people of Israel. Thus they regularly carried out the ministry of the tabernacle. They prepared, they made offerings, doing all that the Lord commanded. David even appointed men for the sole purpose of giving thanks to the Lord. We just read it. Verse 7, Then on that day David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And he, verse 4, backing up a couple verses there. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. They gave thanks regularly. They carried out the ministry of giving thanks for the sole purpose of giving thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. We see this practice in seeking the Lord elsewhere in Scripture. 1 Chronicles twenty-two nineteen. Now set your mind and heart and seek the Lord your God. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on th- things that are on the earth. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Job 8, 5. If you will seek God, and plead with the Almighty for mercy. If you are pure and upright, surely then we will rouse, he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. 
And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Christ has made it possible that we might seek God's presence. He makes us pure, makes us upright, growing our affections for God. Causes us to acknowledge God, our creator, our sustainer. And in Christ's work, God the Father is roused to restore us the habitation that we were created for. Although we have been distorted by the fall, the dwelling place we have found in the Lord is made in the image of God. And it is only right that we be made right in relationship with the Father. And this is only done through the person and work of Christ. So in closing, let's look back a moment at the context of David and Israel. The people of Israel, they corporately acknowledged God for who he is. They worshiped God. They sang praises to God. They joined the chorus of creation in rejoicing. They were unified in their worship. They were singing together. And the worship overflowed in that they sought to make God known in their thanksgiving. In their worship, in their everyday existence, they remembered the works of God. They remembered the works that God historically worked and personally worked, seeking the presence of God continuously. It wasn't a one-time deal. These folks knew how to give thanks. They rightly acknowledged that God, who provided all things, worshipped him, declared his glory to all peoples. And they remembered continuously. So I ask this morning that we examine our Thanksgiving today. Not our Thanksgiving day, our Thanksgiving Are we thankful? Are we truly thankful people? Not for our possessions. Not for our freedoms. Not for our American dream. Are we thankful? Acknowledging the God who provides all of these things. Acknowledging the God who knew we had no hope outside of him. He saw us wallowing in our sin, unable to acknowledge because we had veiled eyes. God sent his son to live a perfect life, a sinless life, going to a cross that we deserved, bearing the full weight of sin, dying a death that we deserved, going to the tomb, raising on the third day, defeating death, giving us victory over sin and death, providing for us life, new life, restoring us into the presence of God so that we can acknowledge, so that we can worship, so that we can share this great news, and so that we can remember the Lord God, giving thanks to the one who deserves our thanks. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you that, we, that you are God, that you are good. We thank you that your steadfast love does, in fact, endure forever. And Lord, change our hearts. Cause us to, to love you. Cause our affections to be for you. Cause us to be thankful for you in this way. Lord, cause us to go out from here. Cause us to be bold with the gospel. Cause us to love you. Love others. And Lord, just uh, make us thankful. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons at podbean.com. Search Grace Baptist Church China Grove to find us. You can also find us on Apple Podcast. Search Grace Baptist Church China Grove. You can also join us at the South Rowan YMCA, 950 Kimball Road, China Grove, North Carolina. We meet on Sunday mornings at 930 for fellowship and service starts at 10. Thank you for listening and remember to be intentional in making disciples this week.